see our kids grow to love Jesus. We want to see us be a whole church who, who recognizes that's our responsibility. Um, secondly, we want to see this church is... God has placed us in this community, in this neighborhood. We want to be able to reach out with the love of Jesus and share the gospel um, with the neighbors that he has placed around us. We want, to do a, 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 we want to grow in our ability to do just that, reach the community that God has placed us in. And then third, we want to continue to grow in our dependence on him through prayer and be a church that does just that. So let's ask the Lord to do just those things. Let's pray right now. Father God, Lord, we, um, as we just got done singing, Lord, you are a great and mighty God. Lord, there is nobody, there is no thing that compares to your awesome nature. Lord, and for many of us in this room right now, we have experienced your kindness. We've experienced your goodness. We've experienced and seen your greatness. Lord, I pray that you would continue to overwhelm this church with a sense of your righteousness and your holiness. Lord, and I pray that the response from our hearts would be that of worship and adoration, that our lives would be consumed with the one true living God. Lord, we also ask that not just of those in this room right now, but we ask that that would be the reality for those children that just walked out of this room. Lord, for the kids that are still in this room, that the youth of this church, that the children of this church, Lord, Lord, that they would grow, and that as they grow and as they are developed, Lord, that they would be cared for, that they'd be loved well by this church. Lord, that we would feed them and care for them through your word, with your word. Lord, I pray that you would give them an appetite to know more and more of your word, that as they memorize verses that they would want more, that they would not just want to have that word be buried in their heads, but Lord, that it would, it would plunge down into their hearts and transform all of their lives, and that they would grow to become young men and young women who love you with everything that they have and love those around them as themselves, Lord. Lord, I pray for help. I thank you so much. Just praise you for Joan um, just answering that call. And um, as she steps into that position, Lord, I pray that as a church that we would support her, that she would um, lack no resource that she needs in order to help those students, those children grow and be cared for on Sunday mornings. And um, Lord, I just pray for us as a church, Lord, that you would um, just, that you'd help us to care well for her. We just thank you for answering that prayer, Lord. You're so good to us. But we also, as we reflect and consider on where you have positioned us as Parkview East, Lord, our prayer is that we would be good neighbors. Lord, that we would um, shine forth the light and truth of the gospel. Not just from this building, Lord, but um, wherever you carry us throughout the week, Lord, that we would be ambassadors, representatives of you in the way that we speak and the, the, the actions that we commit, Lord, and the things that we do, Lord, that they would ultimately be signposts that would be pointing others to the God, to the, to the great one who we have encountered, the one from whom life springs. Lord, I pray that you would help us as we engage and reach the community around us, Lord, that you would, you would help us make disciples of those who we cross paths with. Father, and finally, I just ask that you would help us to be a church that recognizes our great, great need for you. Lord, I just pray that you would help us to be a church who, who commits and devotes ourselves to, to just humbling ourselves before you regularly and crying out in prayer. 
Lord, what a gift prayer is that you give us the ability to speak with you, that you bend your ear towards us. And not just that you hear us, Lord, but you are the type of God who answers and is able to act upon those requests. Lord, I pray that we would believe that you can do that and that it would be reflected in our behavior, the way that we pray. Lord, we thank you for a new life. Think of Hudson Mobley, and I just pray that you would bless the Mobley family as they raise that little guy. Thank you so much just for a safe birth, healthy mom. Thank you. Just pray that you would bless that family. Think of Lindsay and Aiden as they step into a new marriage, Lord. I just thank you for what a, what a beautiful thing that is as they covenant together. I pray that you would bless them in their marriage as they love each other, that they would love one another well and that you would use their marriage as a, as a way of even displaying your grace and your mercy to the world around them. But I also just lift up every marriage in this room. I just pray that same blessing on each of us, Lord, each marriage. Lord, I pray for those who are hurting, who are struggling right now. Pray that you would draw near, whether it's loneliness, whether it's sickness, whether it's financial challenges, Lord, I pray you would draw near to us in our brokenness and our fragility and Lord, that we would feel you know your presence. What a great God you are, the type of God who draws close to those who are in need. And now, Lord, as we turn our attention towards your word, I pray that your spirit would be here, would guide me as we walk through this text, Lord, and that you would use this truth, this word, right in our hearts, shape us into the people that you have called us to be. We ask all these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. All right, well, welcome. It's so good to be able to be with you this morning. Right now, we're gonna turn our attention to God's word. And so if you have a copy of the Bible, I would invite you to take it out and open it up. We'll find ourselves. This summer, we're walking through the parables of Jesus, just some of the parables. And this morning, this morning, is anybody else catching a ringing or not? I'm, I'm sorry, but I, oh, no, okay. All right. Uh, it just was kind of, Distracting me a little bit, sorry. I think it might be this platform. It's metal and that could be a problem sometimes. So um, we're walking through just some selected parables of Jesus. So, so this morning we're in Matthew 18. We're looking at the parable of the unforgiving <clears throat> servant. And I'll read it in its entirety and then we will we'll walk through it together, right? So Bible's out if you've got one. If you don't, I think there's some in the rack ahead of you and there's some in the back there as well. This is God's word. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So this fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused 
and wouldn't put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then this master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is God's word. It is eternal and it is true. This morning we are talking about this parable, really one of the central themes, the central theme to this parable is that of forgiveness. Forgiveness. Before we look at it, I just wanna say a few words about forgiveness in general. First is this, forgiveness is hard. If you're sitting next to somebody, go ahead and look to your neighbor and say, neighbor, forgiveness is hard. Okay, finally got around to it. Forgiveness is hard. I would be willing to guess that if we took a poll in this room this very morning and simply asked, what are the three hardest words for you to speak? My guess is at the top of that list would be these words, I am sorry. And if there was a close runner up to those three words, it would be these three words, I forgive you. Hard words to say because forgiveness is hard. Now, it's hard for a couple of reasons. First is maybe sort of like a contemporary reason. In our day and age, in Western, contemporary Western culture, forgiveness is not popular. It's not a popular concept. The virtuous way of life in our world is that of oftentimes revenge. If you don't believe me, just go watch a Steven Seagal movie, all right? And you'll be convinced. Like, they, you, you did that to me? Well, I'm gonna, you're gonna get yours. You, you, you don't take advantage of me. I'm gonna, payback is coming, baby. Now, Tim Keller writes a really helpful article about a year ago on what's going on in our world today where forgiveness is concerned. And he says that today the emphasis on guilt and justice is ever more on the rise and the concept of forgiveness seems especially to the younger generation increasingly problematic. Increasingly problematic. And I, th I, think, he's, I think he's onto something. If you've been paying attention to just the world around us lately, you will likely agree that forgiveness seems to be, by the world around us, increasingly problematic. For, he says for a couple of reasons. One is because our culture is kind of characterized as a therapeutic culture. This is Tim Keller's argument. He says that culture at large has taken sort of an inward turn. Other cultures value community as a necessary component of identity formation, we simply look within ourselves and say, look inside, and from there, sort of forge an identity for yourself, and then sort of fling that onto the world around you. For a culture that exalts the individual self, 
Forgiveness can easily be viewed as a form of self-renunciation. You're not supposed to renounce it. You're supposed to embrace who you are. But there's another thing going on in our culture today which I think makes forgiveness problematic. It's not just a therapeutic culture. We also have this thing going on called cancel culture, right? In our culture, where, where greater honor and moral virtue is assigned to people based on their, their amount of victimization, the more that they have been victimized and oppressed by society or others in power, sort of the more, the more honor that they have. The, the highest honor comes to victims and secondly to those who, who, who defend victims. Forgiveness in this context is seen now as a radically unjust and impractical practice. It's, it's viewed as sort of short-circuiting the ability of victims to gain honor and virtue as others rise to defend them. In our culture, there's almost no room for forgiveness or reconciliation. We're beyond that. Our culture, forgiveness is viewed as a weakness and increasingly problematic. So, so there's cultural reasons that make forgiveness very, very difficult. But there's also personal reasons. And some of you may identify with this a little bit better. There's personal reasons that make forgiveness hard. Listen to C.S. Lewis as he talks about forgiveness. He says this, this is hard. It is perhaps not so hard to forgive a single great injury, but to forgive the incessant provocations of daily life to keep on forgiving the mean spouse, the selfish daughter, the deceitful son, we could add to the list, the crude coworker, the offensive or hurtful roommate. Forgiveness is hard because it affects us deeply and personally. Today what we're gonna see, what Jesus himself teaches us from Matthew 18, is that while it is not forgiveness, while it is not popular, and though it is deeply personal, as a follower of Jesus, it is essential. It's essential. Forgiveness is an essential mark of true Christian community. It is a evidence of gospel transformation. Forgiveness matters. It's a critical part of being a Christian. So to look at this as we walk through the text, we'll first consider what I believe Jesus is saying in the first couple of verses, what we see in the first couple of verses is that we are Christians. When I say we, I'm referring to Christians. The community of Jesus is a forgiving people. It's a forgiving people. Look at your text in Matthew 18, 21 and 22. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus' response 
I do not say seven, but 77 times. We are a forgiving pe people. Peter's question, our, our text begins with him asking Jesus, essentially what he's asking is, what are the limits for my forgiveness? What, what are the limits as far as how much I should forgive? We should be ready to do that. It's a, it's a good question, but it's, it's also a revealing question because ultimately what he's asking is, what's the bare minimum that you expect from me where forgiveness is concerned? It's a question that likely, whether you know it or not, that each one of us has found ourselves asking in our life. Throughout our life, people will sin against us. They will hurt us. They will offend us. They'll bring harm and pain into our lives. And we find ourselves asking, should I forgive them? Can I forgive them? Now, it's important to see that this, this parable kind of is at the end of chapter 18, a very significant passage that Jesus lays down some foundational stuff about just what it means to live kingdom life together with other people. See, it's a simple fact we see as we read through the Bible that sin will happen even among Christians. Our sanctification, the Bible teaches, is progressive. It's ongoing. It's incomplete. We are all a work in progress and our sin nature is all too real. We still sin, sometimes against one another. A common phrase I like to say around here at Parkview East is wherever there's people, there's poop. Guaranteed. And the truth, the, the church, the truth, it's the truth of the church as well. Wherever you have people, you have to find out how do you get rid of the poop. Well, in Christ's church, there is sin. We sin against one another. And in chapter 18 of Matthew, that's what it's all about. How do we live as a people, as a people who say stupid things, who act selfishly, who, who do hurtful things to one another? Even to people we know and we love, what do we do about it? Jesus is teaching his disciples about life and fellowship within the church, among brothers and sisters in Christ. Matthew 18, 15 to 20, Jesus gives instructions, specific instructions, a plan for what we are to do when a brother or sister sins against us. What will we do as, as we try to uh, promote and move towards reconciliation? He gives us a plan for that. And, and here, right after he lays out what church discipline ultimately looks like, here Peter says in, the, in that context, he's no fool, he's, he's hanging around Jesus long enough and he wants to know what are the limits to this forgiveness? And so as he asks the question, he comes up with the number seven. Now, Peter is a wise man. He, he offers a number that he thinks goes beyond probably. He's been hanging around Jesus. He knows how this works. The Old Testament three was sort of the number for how often you should forgive. It was kind of the number that was oftentimes referred. And Peter says, okay, well, I'm around Jesus. I think it's, it's probably greater than three, so I'll double it and I'll add a little extra on top of it. It's gotta be seven, seven times. Obviously, the number seven throughout the Bible represented, it was a significant number in biblical numerology. It represented completion and perfection. Listen, this is a fantastic guess by Peter. It really is. Seven times, he's probably thinking, I think I'm figuring this out by now. Now that we have received instruction on how we are to make peace with a brother when they sin against you, it makes sense that Peter would ask this question. How many times? But it also reveals something going on in his heart. 
Essentially what he's asking is, show me the limits. What's the minimum? What's the acceptable amount for me to forgive and still pass? I think of how often we try to do the same thing to God. I don't know, maybe you do it in other areas. We, we want to know what's the bare minimum so that I can still be acceptable but not give up too much of myself, right? Not put too much energy, not absorb too much pain. What's the bare minimum? Whether it's in money that I have to give or love I have to extend or time I have to serve or here, the amount of times I need to forgive. Oftentimes, as Christians, we can find ourselves looking for the bare minimum. It's a problem. Jesus' response says, 77 times. Some of your translations may say 70 times seven. Either way, the point Jesus is making is, Peter, you're missing the point. (laughs) You're missing the point. You are looking for the boundaries that you should draw around your forgiveness. And what I'm saying to you is, as a follower of me, the forgiveness that you should anticipate extending has no boundaries, knows no limits. There is no ceiling on the forgiveness that you should extend. Jesus is telling Peter, and he's telling us this morning, if you ride with Jesus, you are by definition a forgiving person. Infinite forgiveness. Jesus is telling Peter that we are always to forgive There's no statute of limitations. We are to extend grace and forgiveness without limit. Now, we started talking about how hard forgiveness is. So when you consider this, it is so hard to forgive. Your forgiveness should know no limits. This is not a small thing Jesus is saying. This is not a small thing You might be sitting there thinking to yourself, maybe there's somebody who sinned against you. You have no idea what he did to me. You might, as you think about your life, be thinking to yourself, you have, I I understand that, but you weren't in the room when she said that to me. Jesus is telling us this morning that we are by definition to be a forgiving people. Now, just two quick things. There is a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. I think it's important for us to understand that. Forgiveness is always required by God, but it does not always lead to reconciliation. Forgiveness is an inward heart condition. It really takes one person to forgive. Reconciliation, it's, you know, it, it, it's different. It, it's possible to forgive someone without offering immediate reconciliation. It, it's possible forgiveness to occur in the, in the context of one's relationship with God apart from contact with an offender. Some of us, during confession time, sought forgiveness from God, confessed our sins, and in our heart, maybe we're able to find the ability to forgive somebody else, and they're not even in this room. But reconciliation is focused on restoring broken relationships. And where trust is deeply broken, restoration 
is a process. It's one that Jesus wants us to pursue. It's one that he wants us to follow. And sometimes it's a lengthy one. We're commanded to pursue it. Forgiveness and reconciliation, while they're related, they're different. Second thing I want us to understand is that Jesus is not calling us to just lay down our life and be a doormat for people who are abusive, who are cruel, who are mean, to just walk all over us. It's not what he's asking us to do. You can see that there are real consequences for sin. Jesus doesn't just say, you're in a harmful relationship, just stay there and just take it for the team. It's not what he's asking us to do, okay? Those are sort of two side notes. I just think it's important for us to keep those in mind. Second point, we are a forgiving people by definition because we are a forgiven people. Jesus answered Peter's question, not by giving him a number, which is what Peter wanted. He wanted a number. Instead, Jesus did what Jesus does. He gave him a story. He told him a story. So just in summary, he tells a story of a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with one of his servants. Easily, his audience would be able to have categories for these words. For us, it may seem a little distant. For his audience, it was right on point. A servant who was massively indebted to this king. We're told that the servant had what could be viewed as an absurd amount that he owed the king. We're told in verse 24 that the servant owed some 10,000 talents. Now, as I did research and looked in different books, almost every commentary gave me a different number for what that would look like in today's money, okay? So here's what you need to know. I'm not gonna attempt to do any math for you and you know, embarrass myself by getting the wrong answer here. This is the point. A talent would have qualified for the largest denomination of currency. And while there's been many different attempts to calculate it in today's standards, what you need to understand is this is primarily hyperbolic. What he's saying here would be equivalent to him saying that this individual in our contemporary language owed the king zillions of dollars. Not an actual number, but when I say zillions, every single person here knows it's massive. Or jillions, maybe you prefer jillions. Sorry for any jillions that are out there, I apologize, but that is a number that sometimes that doesn't exist that we say. The idea is that it's an absurd amount of money. It's a ridiculous amount of money. It's far too large to pay back. This is an extraordinary debt and it represented a debt that no normal citizen could ever hope to repay. For, for this man, the situation, what Jesus is trying to show us is that for the servant, his situation, apart from the mercy and the pity and the forgiveness of the king, is hopeless. His debt is so big, there is no way out. It's, it's hopelessness. And since he could not pay, he would be forced into servitude and the, the proceeds that he would use would be paid off the, the portion of his debt. It's impossible. It's not gonna happen. Because his debt was so impossible to pay back, the servant did that the one thing he could do threw himself at the feet of the king, pleaded for patience and mercy. It's all he could do. See it in verse 24. And amazingly, we're told that the king answered the request. Look at verse 27. It says, and out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the massive debt. 
We should be blown away by this response. This is a beautiful picture of grace and forgiveness, one that is almost even hard to imagine. The only thing that's harder to imagine is this man's response. This man, we're told, this forgiven servant, then goes out, having just been released, have just been freed from the debt that would crush him. He then goes out and finds a fellow servant who owes him money. And we're told that this amount of money that he, he owed him was a uh, hundred denarii. A denarii would be like a wage, a day wage for a laborer. So a hundred, this is basically like the, you know, a third of a salary for a year that is owed. So it's, it's large, it's not a small debt, but it, with some discipline, with some work, it's manageable. It, it could be paid off. And then in, in comparison to how much he was just forgiven, it is pennies. It's, it's almost ridiculous. He grabbed his fellow servant, seizing him, choking him, and demanded, pay what you owe. This man had just been on his knees pleading for his life, have mercy, have patience. And in fact, his servant now is on his knees saying the exact same words, have patience on me with this debt, have mercy on me. Patience would have been doable. This debt could be taken care of. Nevertheless, the servant who had just had this massive debt forgiven refused and then placed the other servant in prison until he could pay what he owed. This Hopefully, as you read the story, see, there's a word that come to my, came to mind that was kind of written all over this text, absurd. This kind of response from a man who had been forgiven so much is absurd. It's ridiculous. How crazy how ridiculous this is. The, the absurdity is noticed by his fellow servants around him, and they, they report it immediately to the master, who has some very hard words for this individual. And, and the two stories, the story of the man who was forgiven and the one who refused to forgive, the, the missing component is that of, in the second scenario, compassion, pity, forgiveness. The king has it, the servant can't display it. What should have happened, as we read the story, is that that servant should have been the first one. He should have gone out looking for people to forgive, people who needed to give him money. He could have gone out, instead he goes out and he's collecting money. This is ridiculous. It's ridiculous because as a person who has been forgiven so much, forgiveness should just flow through him. And the same could be said for us as followers of Jesus. As we consider the massive debt, I mean, while this is a big debt, our offense before a holy, perfect, righteous God is significantly larger. And yet God in his grace and his mercy, as we throw ourselves at his feet and plea for patience and forgiveness, freely gives it to us. And the natural result of the forgiveness flowing in and rushing into our life should be that we should be like a conduit where it flows through us and is extended to those around us. 
It's an essential mark of who we are. We are a forgiving people. Why? Because we've been a forgiven people. And all of this makes sense because ultimately, we bend our knee to, third point, the God of forgiveness. Look at the way that the story ends. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant? You were a forgiven person. Shouldn't you not be a forgiving person as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. After reflecting on the king's great mercy and readiness to forgive, it may strike you as odd to read that this same king, this compassionate, merciful, loving king who, who poured out lavishly on this servant can also unleash righteous anger and punishment. It may seem odd to read through the parable and see this king act him, acting almost reckless with his mercy to then turn around and have such stern, hard words that he speaks. But how do you reconcile those two responses? They seem contradictory, do they not? D.A. Carson's helpful as he captures the balance between justice and mercy. Listen to what he says. Jesus sees no incongruity in the actions of the heavenly Father who forgives so bountifully and punishes so ruthlessly, and neither should we. Indeed, it is precisely because he is a God of such compassion and mercy that he cannot possibly accept as his those devoid of compassion and mercy. See, this is who we are. We ought to be a forgiving people. Yes, because he's forgiven us, but because he is the God of forgiveness. And as people who reflect his image to the world around us, we ought to reflect and embody that exact same forgiveness. So much so that if we do not, if it doesn't flow through us, then the reality is it's likely never entered us and overtaken us in the first place. Jesus' people are a forgiving people because we are, for, are forgiven people who've been transformed by the God, by our God through forgiveness. It's in our blood. It's who we are. And with this strong word of warning, especially in verse 35, look at verse 35. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So also my heaven, sorry, put it in there again. If you, yeah, that's it. Doubled it up for some reason. Sorry about that. If you don't forgive others, my forgiveness won't be for you. You might be looking at it, thinking to yourself, does this mean we can lose salvation? It's not what he's saying. What he's saying is there's a very good chance if you are not extending the forgiveness of God that you've never received the forgiveness of God in the first part. This is an essential mark of Christianity. It's easy for me to think of love and compassion as essential marks. This week, it just... One of the things that just blew me away is how critical this is for us. That as it comes into our life, it flows out of our life. I think sort of three main points that Jesus is making with this parable is first, judgment is coming. These are hard words that we hear at the end of the parable. 
Jesus doesn't pass over this point. He spoke with clarity what would happen to the unmerciful servant in the story. He is thrown into prison and tasked with the impossible assignment of paying off this enormous debt. This judgment, that same judgment, hangs over everyone who has not experienced or received the forgiveness, God's forgiveness, in Christ. Judgment is coming. Second thing I think he wants us to know is that while judgment is coming, forgiveness is possible. God takes forgiveness so seriously, so seriously. It costs him so much for you and me to be forgiven. How seriously does God look? How seriously does he take forgiveness? He sends his son to spill his blood on the cross to give up his life for you and for me so that we can be forgiven. And how much we cheapen that or devalue that when his forgiveness dead ends in our life. And we're sitting there thinking to ourselves, how could I ever? I mean, I'm not trying to say it's, it's easy, it's hard. I'm not trying to say it's free and comes with no price, it does. For some of us, it means swallowing our pride turning our gaze from inward to outward. That's a hard thing to do. It comes with a cost. And ultimately, God paid the price by sending his son to die on the cross so that you and me can be forgiven and can walk freely through this world, forgiving those who have offended us beyond our imagination. Proof exists. Proof exists. Judgment's coming, there's a way to be forgiven and proof exists. If you've been forgiven by God in Jesus, the proof is your life. Proof that you've received the forgiveness of God through faith in Jesus is a transformed heart and a changed life that now extends forgiveness to others. That's what it means to walk in the light. And the encouragement for us this morning is to Stay on that path. Two closing words of application. First, embrace God's forgiveness. How do we get this deep down into the practical areas of our life so that we actually begin to treat others the way we've been treated? Step number one, embrace God's forgiveness. C.S. Lewis in that same article says, how can we do it? How can we do this? This seems so hard. Only, I think, by remembering where we stand. Covered in the blood of Jesus. Forgiven by the creator of the universe. The Holy One. Remember where we stand and by meaning our words when we say in our prayers, each night, forgive our trespasses as we forgive those who've trespassed against. As we come before the holy, righteous God, we must see ourselves as we are, sinners, in need of desperate, desperate need of forgiveness. And the great promise that we have in Scripture is that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's why we confess our sins in service, because this is, this is a way of embracing God's forgiveness Secondly, we are to extend, embrace God's forgiveness and extend his forgiveness. 
The forgiveness of God is like a battering ram which obliterates the walls of sin that separate us from him. It is through his forgiveness that those walls come crashing down and we are invited to experience a renewed relationship with him. This is exactly what we're able to do with others when we forgive as God has forgiven us. Forgiveness is a powerful tool which allows us to release a person who has wronged us from the penalty of being separated from us. When we forgive someone, truly forgive them, we no longer hold their sins over their head and dangle it out in front of them from time to time when it's convenient for us. We no longer do that. Ken Sandy is really helpful in his book. On, it's called The Peacemaker. And he says, as you consider forgiveness, that it, it, it's a decision ultimately to claim, he says, four promises. The first promise is this. I will not dwell on the incident. We haven't forgiven if we can't let it go. If we're brooding on an injury or a transgression after confession, then we're holding the guilt over somebody's head. I will forgive you, but I will not forget. It may, in fact, not be forgiveness. Corey Timboom's comment I love, and her reply to a former colleague asking if she remembered the colleague's transgression from some years prior, Corey said, I distinctly remember forgetting. And we would do well to follow that example. The Bible tells us that as far as God is concerned with us, he, when he forgives us, he remembers our sins no more. Follow that example. Secondly, the promise we're making is I will not bring this incident up and use it against you. I just say, as I'm reading through these, how tempting they are. How tempting they are. You know, when you're in an argument and you've got something you can leverage for your, you know, make your case from 10 years ago, how tempting is it to reach back there and to just remember? Hmm? Case in point. It's so tempting. But as we forgive, we are, we are claiming this promise that I will not bring this incident up and use it against you. When we haven't forgiven, we can store up a transgression until the right time when we can attack with it, leverage some future outcome or gain some advantage. Folks, that's not forgiveness. Third promise that we need to make is I will not talk to others about this incident. If we forgive a person, then the matter should not be spread to other people. If you've forgiven, you're not holding it against them, you're not storing it up, then you don't have any business talking about it with everybody else. Apart from serious situations, there are some that require counseling and the like, we don't raise the matter with others. What I'm not saying is somebody's done you some damage and there should be a, a consequence or a penalty for the harm they've caused and if you've forgiven them in their heart, don't pursue that. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that you don't, you don't spread your opinion of that person with other people if you've truly forgiven them, okay? There's certainly a place for help and for some mediation in the matter. Fourth, last promise is I will not allow this incident to stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. This is sometimes the most difficult part, and it's this part that requires something akin to the seven A's of confession, if you've read. You'd read that for further reading. Full confessions enable full reconciliation. The aim is redemption. It's restoration of the relationship, and a truly forgiving person should seek that. So folks, this morning, as we consider the forgiveness of God, we are reminded that while it may not be popular, 
And while it may be deeply personal, we are a people marked by forgiveness. And God has called us to practice that on a regular basis. So to close, I'm gonna close with the Lord's Prayer. If you would bow your heads and I'll pray this for us.